summed up the message, uh, that one just did it. Just did what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, we have started, today was the launch of a brand new uh, satellite church from Calvary in Bristol, Tennessee. And um, a lot of our members are there helping that get started. And uh, we'll be back in time for work in class tomorrow. But um, I know some of you stayed up late. I stayed up late and was a little nervous there in the beginning, and then things kind of smoothed out for us the way they they should. And as I was getting ready for today, I thought, my goodness, people are going to be a little sleepy, a little tired. Some of you drove back, and I thought, what better to wake up a church than a little Hosea? Yeah, 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 that and caffeine, and you've got yourself a Sunday morning. Now, we've been looking at this book now for several weeks, and we're going to wrap up this series today, and I just love how God moves and works in history, and the thing I like about this book is that these prophecies and this this movement and this metaphor that God did through the life of this guy, it's not just echoing and reverberating. There are some of these prophecies that have not been or they are in process of being fulfilled now. This is an ongoing thing. And if you're a student of that, you're going to realize, wow, there's some of this that hasn't happened yet or seems to be happening right now, that we're in the midst of that. And that's, that's kind of fascinating and affirming to me. This guy was a bold, bold uh, man. And uh, to, to carry on, to follow through with what God wanted him to do. So now, today, we're going to look at the fact that God is speaking through Hosea to, uh, about his plan. And what he wants to do is what we just sang about, bring his people back. Bring his people back. And if you've ever been um, away from a place that you loved and you wanted to get back there, if you've ever been... Uh, apart from a person, maybe you had an argument or a breakup and you just, and you just wanted to get back together. Uh, maybe you've been distant from the Lord. Maybe you are right now. There's a part of your heart that still longs for him. You've heard my story so many times, I'm not going to... I'm not going to tell it again, but I will say this, that the, the best way I could describe this, and I can re- remember when I, when I was 11 years old and I, I saw this Billy Graham film and I prayed with as sincere as I could uh, a heart for Christ to come into my life. I really think he did, but I went a long way away from that. And it wasn't until I was 19 years old that I came back and this guy asked me, a pastor said, will you speak to our youth group? And one of the one of the students in this youth group asked me, he said, well, how does it feel? And I was trying to sum it up or to give this picture. And I said, well, do you know what it feels like to be homesick? To be away from home and not be able to get there. And then when you finally do, that's what it feels like. It's like coming home. It's like being back where you know you're supposed to be and you, you're where your heart longs for. And that's what that felt like for me. And still feels like that now. The song we sang a few moments ago, one of the oldest hymns I think we have is, you know, where he says, bind my wandering heart to thee um, because I have that tendency, and we do. Well, what we're going to talk about really begins in the first part of the fifth chapter of Hosea, and it goes into the sixth chapter, and God, you know, the, the prophet describes uh, 
you know, how God is coming against his people to kind of punish them for their rebellion, to discipline them. And then in the sixth chapter, he says, now here's why I'm going to do that. And some of you who are parents, you know, before or after or during, you know, when you discipline a child, you go, now this is what this is about. This is why. Or even on your workplace, if you've ever gotten a whether it's a pink slip or a yellow slip or whatever color slip your company uses, if you've ever gotten a bad grade on an exam or a paper, you know that is part of a discipline. And usually a professor is going to write on there, hey, you didn't explain or you did this or you didn't say that enough. Or you kind of know, you're, you know your supervisor is going to call you in and say, hey, here's, here's the thing about your job performance. Or, you know, you've been tardy every day. Or, you know, so here's why you're getting these marks. And you kind of you understand that. That's sort of what God's doing here in, the, in this. And I'm just going to read uh, with you part of that section because that would be a lot uh, to read. So I'm going to read. Chapter 5, verse 15, uh, into the third chapter, the sixth, excuse me, third verse of the sixth chapter. Uh, and here's what, here's what Scripture says. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down. And he will bind us up. And after two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. I love the fact that God never just leaves things there, but he always has hope at the end of it. He he always wants you to know this is not the last chapter. This is not the end of the movie. This is not uh, the last thing he has uh, for you. What God wants to do, he desires to remove anything that Israel might choose to worship in order for them to remember why they need him. Because if you remember what we've talked about up until now, for those of you who've been kind of regulars or tenders, for guests, you can catch up real fast. Um, but they had this tendency to wander and to seek after other things and to try to uh, replace God with other stuff. Um, and I know you hear that, and I hear that, but we're going to be mature, and we're going to press on. Good for you. I'm glad that you're not easily distracted. Now, in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 1.20 and in 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 and other places, Paul talks about handing someone over or a group of people over to Satan. Has that ever been a curious thing to you? Have you ever read that and thought, what? You're going to give me to the devil? Yeah, we're going to give you to the devil. And that's what he says. And in both of those cases, the people are unrepentant. They're members of the church. I hope this kind of scares you a little bit. They're members of the church, but he says, you know what? We just got to hand them over to Satan because they won't repent. That's a scary thing. Sometimes... Sometimes it takes removing someone and letting them chase their own destructive sin in order for them to realize that they need Christ. I've been one of those people. I've been one of those people. Maybe you've been one of those people. So God was planning to allow his people to see this is what it's like when you distance yourself from me, when you want to live on your own, which is exactly what started 
all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were really choosing independence. They were choosing, you know, we've been so reliant on you, but if we do this, if we eat this fruit and we move in this direction, we kind of got our own thing going. We, we don't really need, they were choosing independence. God says, you know, let's see how that works for you. And it didn't work out so good. It never works out good for me. So this is what God's doing with these people. And you can see through the flow of this story, this historical event that really took place, uh, how God's letting that happen. So in a way, I was thinking of uh, phrases that we use to describe that. You could say, well, I've come to the end of my rope. You ever said that? The one I thought about is, well, I've hit rock bottom. That's a good Tennessee phrase. I've just hit rock bottom. And I found an article that said 12 reasons why hitting rock bottom is the best thing that can ever happen to you. Now, if you're here and you're at rock bottom, you're thinking, well, that's always easy for the guy up there talking to say stuff like that. But it's not so easy when you're at rock bottom. Well, I've been there, and some of you have been there, and you will be there. But it's got some really good good points. So I want to walk through just some reasons and some ideas for you to think about that's connected uh, to this scripture. And I see this played out again and again and again in the book of Hosea and maybe in your life. So listen up. Here's some wisdom. Here's some insight for you. Uh, At the bottom... You realize just how far off course you were and that your life choices are simply not sustainable. It's in those dark moments of despair uh, that your anger, your frustration just gets so great that you're ready to declare once and for all, I'm never going to accept mediocrity like that again from myself or from others. I'm not going to, I don't want to be back in this place. Number two, at the bottom, All your dysfunctional behaviors are finally revealed. And if you never hit your lowest point, those behaviors, that dysfunction in you, will go unnoticed or unchecked or you'll rationalize it. You'll spend your life in denial. And you'll think your wife is wrong. And you'll think mom and daddy's wrong. And they just don't get it. And they don't see. And I don't know why that. But when you hit this place and the bubble burst... You can't delude yourself anymore. And you begin to think, well, maybe my life is being built on a big fat lie and a lot of false information that I've told myself. Number three, hitting rock bottom is the beginning of questioning everything that you've ever thought to be true. You ever get there, you're going to see that you're not so sure about your motives other people's motives, your beliefs, your fears, why you did things, why you didn't do things, why you, you know, uh, got yourself into this circumstance, why you succeed, why you failed. It's like the very fabric of your life just becomes unraveled and you're able to see things and to examine that in raw detail and maybe to be honest with yourself for the first time in a long time. And it's that point that you get to that you're able to build again, that you can go up because that's about the only direction you've got to move in, right? It's just a fresh perspective because there's clarity now. There's something about hitting rock bottom uh, that you figure that out. I was talking to a guy not long ago. I think I've mentioned this before. And 
um, we were in a counseling process, and we had met for a couple of times, and he came back, and he said, you know what I figured out? And I said, what have you figured out? He said, I have caused about 70% of my own problems. He said, I just started looking at all that, all the things that are going wrong in my life, and I, and I, and I just realized I did that. I did about 70% of my stuff is on me. And I said, well, yeah, I kinda, we all kind of saw that. you know. And you've been blaming your mama, and you've been blaming your boss, and you've been blaming your professor and all. And he said, you know, I think I did that. There's clarity at rock bottom. At the bottom, your, your, your disempowering patterns and behaviors become glaringly obvious. And those triggers that kept you repeating those patterns come into real sharp focus. And I don't know if you see that until you get there. You know what I've been doing? I do every time this happens, I do this. Well, how about that? You know, and that we think, well, you just now kind of seeing that. You have been kind of a puppet, uh, playing that same role over and over and over. And creating those same dynamics over and over and over. Do you not see? Do you not begin to see? It may be different circumstances, different relationships. But that pattern, that behavior in you kind of tends to be repetitive. You're, you're like one of those actors in a soap opera. You know, you know those that just go on and on for years. And you think, where are we going to take this story? Well, let's just repeat the story. Let's let the characters get amnesia again or you know and and it just goes on and they all marry each other and divorce each other and they you know i mean how can the story keep going on and on but then you look at your own story and you think well that's kind of seems to be the way it played out well you know what you can break that mold and you can start journeying back to your true self the person that god's created you to be the woman that he wants you to be the man that he has designed and that's in there and stop playing those same old records Again and again and again. Create a new consciousness. Now, at rock bottom, you realize that you were, in fact, not where you thought you were in life. That it was your ego that was running the show. It was your pride that was calling the shots. And when your ego... When you get to rock bottom, it it starts loosening that death grip that it had on you. And all of a sudden, you're beginning to be willing to trust somebody other than yourself. You can look at the Lord like these people began to do and say, well, maybe I don't have all the best ideas. Maybe it's not my way and that's the only way. Maybe you start doubting yourself and you start trusting the Lord and the other people around you that God is using to speak value and truth into your life. I grew up a rebellious teenager. My dad and I, oh my goodness, we didn't see anything alike. I liked blues and rock and roll and he liked that old twangy country music. He used Brill Cream. I did not. Uh, We were just so different about everything. But something happened when I got into my late 20s and around 30. I thought, this guy's a genius. (laughs) He just got so smart overnight. I don't know what happened. But things he would say, I would think, oh, my goodness. And, you know, I never thought I'd get to the place in life where I'd call him and say, well, what what do you think? 
and he'd have a good idea. I don't know what happened to the man, but I know this. When you hit rock bottom, some of those people around you that you're not listening to right now, like maybe your husband <laughs> or your pastor, <laughs> especially your... Now, it may start making more sense. Here's another one. And, and you know what? That's going to feel good. That's going to feel good. Um, you gain humility. You start seeing that life is not black and white and that you don't know everything. And in fact, you realize how little you do know. And you decide, I'm going to start being a student instead of a judge. You gain compassion. You start understanding what it's like for people who are in deep levels of despair and shame and guilt and fear. And you're not quite so hard on them anymore. You can't help from coming back out of that dark bottom place feeling compassion for some of the people around you that you used to just be judgmental about. At the bottom, you're able to let go of everything because nothing's working anyway. Letting go of all that old stuff and those ideas and people and uh, opening your, your, your heart and your mind up for new opportunities and talents and gifts and these things start flooding into your life. I had a friend, he was a member of the church where I was a pastor and um, he was scared to death of losing his job and he could see it coming. They're making cuts and this is going to happen and uh, he did everything he could to hold on to that job and he positioned himself and he worked and he did this and finally the inevitable happened. They called him in and said, your job's going away. He was heartbroken. He was scared. He didn't know how he was going to feed his family. And out of desperation, there was this idea he had had years ago and he thought, well, what have I got to lose? Nothing's working. I don't have any income. I, I, what else? What can I do? And so he moved in this direction of a new business venture. In two years, he had paid off every debt that he had. He bought a farm and a new pickup truck, and he's moving forward. And I'll never forget him saying, you know what? I would have never left that company. Never, 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 because that was the only thing. And I was holding on to it with both hands. He said, but when I didn't have any other options... God pushed me off the cliff. He pushed me in this direction. That's kind of what happens at rock bottom. And after you've hit that place, you perhaps for the first time begin to accept full responsibility for the outcomes of your life. See, until you get to rock bottom, it's so easy for it to be your wife's fault, your daddy's fault. He didn't hug you enough. Your, you know, your teacher didn't treat you right, and you didn't have enough safe places. And you know, I mean, you know, you, you, we come up with all, with all of this, and we we just we're constantly blaming everybody around us. Well, at rock bottom, there's a mirror, <laughs> and uh, and you start seeing for the first time, this is on me, and all the excuses I've made that were just dumb, and you realize that you know it was you who created a lot of the good and the bad in your life, and now you're open to the Lord. And you say, Lord, I'm in a dark hole, and I think I got myself here. I dug this, and will you help me out? Now, the good news is, is at rock bottom, 
you know you can't possibly go any lower. And you realize the bottom is actually kind of a springboard where you can get back up top. Now, I've only seen this, this, this broken one time. I had a friend who got to rock bottom. And it's like he took out a shovel and started digging. And I'm like, dude, you know, I don't know what your goal is. But finally, you know, there's a bottom to the bottom. Rock bottom wakes you up on how reliant you were on externals and how you were counting on everything else to make you happy. And instead of needing all this outside validation and approval and people and you're just on that performance treadmill and some of you are jumping through hoops and you realize, Lord, you're the only one. If I please you and if you live in me and I live in you, what does the rest matter? And all of a sudden, you are so free to follow God's sense of purpose and, and his, his validation. And this, this inner sanctuary that he creates in you becomes this foundation. And you start leaning into a new and happy and meaningful life. And finally, in rock bottom, when you're at your lowest point, you become enormously grateful for all that you have from that day forward. You know how on a day like this, we really don't appreciate what we've got. We just sort of take it for granted, and it's there, and we're glad we've got it. But we don't even think about it so much. It's on the day that your car doesn't start, and you can't get a ride. It's on the day that you're sick, and you feel miserable, that you would love to have just an ordinary day. The day that your heart was broken, the, the day that you got this call, the day that that didn't work out. I mean, you know, those days you just wish for an ordinary, everyday day. And you appreciate it so much. Scripture is so consistent all the way through. And that's been the, one of the things that's just, just pulled me deeper into Christ because I didn't believe that when I first started walking with him. But now I see it's all connected. All of these books bound together in this library are amazingly uh, in sync with one another. For instance, in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews said that we should rejoice in the fact that God disciplines us. In the 12th chapter, he said, you know, God disciplines you because he loves you. If he didn't care about you, he'd be apathetic about that. He does it, the scripture tells us, because he's treating us as his children. Now, I don't typically discipline other people's children. There are times I want to, (laughs) and you do too. You've been in the restaurant and looked over there and thought, give me three minutes, Lord, (laughs) I'll straighten him out. And we've all thought that. But, you know, that's why some of your friends who are living wretched, maybe they're just living sinful lives, you think, well, everything seems to go okay with them, and God never does anything to them. It's because they're not his kids. You are, and so he disciplines us. If he didn't, he wouldn't be a good, good father. He wouldn't be that, but he is. He is. We've all seen what happens when we're scared to discipline our children because we want them to like us or we don't want to hurt their little feelings or we're scared, you know, and, and we've all known parents. Some of you are parents who will not discipline your children. And it always comes back in negative ways. It always comes back in hurtful ways. So every child, whatever the expression of discipline is appropriate for the moment, 
they should receive that, except for my grandchildren. Um, and there are times I just think their parents are so overbearing and strict and hard on them, and I don't understand it. But generally, discipline is a good thing, so it's okay. It's okay. He loves you, and that's why he's doing it. And this is comforting, and it's affirming to me and to any of us, especially if we've been heartbroken by a friend or a family member, someone who's just walked away from God. That season, before you rescue them, God may have them in that season, and he may let that person get all the way down, whether it's you or somebody you love, get all the way down to rock bottom, because that's the only place he's going to be able to rescue them and bring them back, and he's got to do this process in their life. And I know some of your mom and daddy, some of your brothers and sisters and your friends, You just want to rescue them. I'm going to say a hard thing. Hard, hard thing. It's going to sound cold. I loved my mama. (laughs) I loved my little brother. But my mother, out of a heart of love, tenderness enabled my brother to continue in destructive patterns and he died at age 42 and I'm not blaming my mother it's his choices he did what he did as a grown man but she felt like she was doing the right thing and she carried that guilt with her until she died because she rescued him over and over and over again. And he never faced the consequences of his behavior and his dysfunction and his addictions until it was too late. I don't know what word God has for you in that. I'm not saying abandonment. I'm not saying turn away. I'm not saying don't love. And I'm not saying don't ever rescue somebody because sometimes they need that. But be sensitive and be aware and try to discern, God, are you doing something in their life? Peter Lord was a pastor down in Titusville, Florida, and he used to pray about his son Johnny because Johnny was rebellious and he's always getting in trouble. And he said, oh, Lord, do whatever you got to do in Johnny's life, but please don't let him go to jail. Please don't let him go to jail. He said, everybody in this town knows me. I'm the pastor of the biggest church in Titusville. And if he goes to jail, it's going to be, it's going to be, he said, Lord, please don't. And his son just continued to rebel and to rebel and to rebel. And he finally got so desperate. He said, I just knelt down and he said, I just lifted up my hand and I just said, oh, God, do anything in Johnny's life that you got to do, anything that you want to do to bring him back to Jesus. He said, you won't believe it, but I got a, a phone call the next day. Your son's in jail. <laughs> and it made the front page of the paper. But his son, through that process, came back to Jesus in a powerful way and is in ministry today and has a walk and a heart for the Lord, and so do his children. Listen, this message can be comforting, it can be challenging, but that season can be a time of God's working on people's hearts. And during that time, never give up hope. 
And I know some of you are hurting because you've got adult children or you've got a brother or sister or you've got a cousin or maybe you've got parents. Don't give up hope. Remain hopeful. There's a scripture. Now, I told you when we started this together that a lot of these prophets were kind of speaking in this same time and to the same people. And they've got this message, and it's just kind of coming at them from different directions. You know, you've got your running game. You've got your passing game. You've got all these options. You get it? See the analogy I tied in? That's what a good communicator does. He you know, relates to what you're thinking about. So God's got... Ezekiel, and he's, and he's doing his thing, and he's got Hosea, and he's got this guy named Jeremiah. He's, man, all of these guys were off the chart, uh, crazy, doing these things. But Jeremiah is, is a contemporary, and he's in there. He's the running back. And Jeremiah, I want you to listen to this, this one scripture um, that's consistent and that flows with this, and I want to explain or share with you and kind of bring us back to where we started. Jeremiah 3.10. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart. But in pretense, declares the Lord. See, that's the same message that Hosea is, is speaking. From a different direction. See, Judah... It was a very prosperous and religious nation, a lot like ours. And from outward appearance, they were godly people, just like us. But God said, they haven't turned to me with their whole heart. Now, I want you to take a look at this phrase, Sister Judah has not returned. Because behind the scenes, and I didn't draw this for you today, um, but we've been looking at the language because... And, and I, sometimes I do that, sometimes I don't, because sometimes there's, it just says what it says, and you read it in English and go, yep, that's pretty much what it says. But sometimes, like today, there's an amazing play on words that's happening beneath the surface, behind the scenes. Every English translation renders the word shavah as return or turn back. And what the translators are doing is they're looking at these vowels, there weren't any vows, and they're assuming it's a feminine ending because he just called Judah sister. Are you with me? But there's a hint here of something deeper. There's, a, there's, a, there's an insight into our relationship with God that's tucked into this little verse. You see, in the original Hebrew, there were no vowel pointings, okay? It didn't exist. That came several hundred years after Jesus because you remember how the Jews were being scattered all over the world and this language is going with them, but it's all written. And they said, well, we're going to forget how to pronounce this. It's just like Spanish or Italian or French, you know. You've got these little hints. You go, oh, you say it like, oh, the, it takes on this sound because you see that little, that's what they did. So they added it back in. It wasn't there originally. Now, in the original text, the word shava is you know, we see it translated turned, but it's spelled like this, Shin Beth Hai. The word is, anytime I can find it anywhere else, it literally means to be taken captive. It comes from a root word, which means imprisoned. And from that, there is a word, Yashad, that means to dwell. So where am I going with this? Here's where I'm going, because I kind of get Hosea's 
generation because I've struggled with what it means to give God my whole heart. Haven't you? Haven't there been times when you've even been saying the words in prayer, God, I just give you my whole heart, and there's something inside you that's going, no, you don't. (laughs) Or you think of something, you think, oh, yeah, except for that. (laughs) I'm giving you my whole heart. Oh, but not that yet. I'm giving you three quarters. And we keep that up, and, and you think, God, I know I'm falling short. Maybe you felt that too. Well, this Hebrew word in Jeremiah translated treacherous. You think, isn't that an unusual word? Um, is begad, and it, and it means, it carries with it the idea of a covering or a wrapping. So, like the prophet says, I'm saying, God, I give you my whole heart. And God says, I think you're just giving me the outward appearance. I think you're giving me your wrapping, the wrapper. Not what's deep inside you, not your fears and your pride and your flesh and all. I don't think you're given that. And that's what this passage is about. That's what this whole study's been about in Hosea. That when I say I give him my whole heart, it's just a pretense. Judah looked godly on the outside. They went to church, they gave the tithe, they made sacrifices, they went on mission trips, they sang praises. They appeared holy, but God said, that's just the top layer. So they faked the rest. Just like me. Just like you. Just like we do. So to give God my whole heart means to be taken captive by Him. To be His prisoner. For my heart to be imprisoned within God's heart... That's what this language, if you work it out, that's what he's saying. Now, here's the thing about prisoners, especially those who've been in prison for a long time. And some of you have been in the prison of your hypocrisy or your shame or your guilt or your sin for a long time. And sometimes when prisoners are set free and they get on the outside, they don't know what to do. It's so overwhelming. It's so intimidating because we've always had, always had the warden. <laughs> we've always had a guard. Somebody made a decision for us. We didn't have to do that. Now you're on the outside and you think, I've got all these options. And I don't, I wish I was back in prison. And so you, instead of trusting Jesus and stepping out and allowing God to capture your heart, you hold back part of it all the time. Because it's easier and it feels safer for you to keep doing what you're doing, living where you're living, than to be free. Another play on this word Shavah is to dwell. If God has our whole heart, He dwells in our heart. Tabernacles is a word, He holds it captive. And so many Christians spend a lot of time and energy trying to win God's favor and get him to like them through good works and tithes. Not a lot of you are trying the tithes thing. And I'm going to encourage you to jump on board with that new app and give it a shot and see what God does with your finances. Through prayer, through Bible study. And those are all good things. But instead of letting God take our hearts captive, we just act more religious and we just do more religious things and I'm discovering that the only way I can know his heart is to allow my heart to be 
held captive by his. You can't live like a person in prison, afraid of the freedom on the outside of those bars. You've got to step out in Christ and be free. That was the sin of Judah. That's what Hosea's whole message was concerning. The people didn't want to be held prisoner of God's heart. But if you want to give God your whole heart, he will make you his Shabbat, his captive. And he will put you in the prison of his own heart. And he won't let you escape. And you won't want to. And since I want to give God my whole heart, he has it. My problem is like Judah. Sometimes I'm looking for a way to escape. (laughs) But when you give God your whole heart, he will guard it. And he will keep it. He will keep it. 2 Timothy 2.13 is a beautiful verse. I love, I love the way Paul said things. He said this. If... And whenever you see if at the beginning of a sentence in the New Testament, it means since. Since we're faithless. Even if we're faithless, and we're going to be, is kind of the idea. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. But he cannot deny or disown himself. It's who he is. God being faithful to you is not just consistent with his character. It's God being God. He can't be or do anything else. You're free and you're safe. You can trust him. Some of you are hesitant to come to Jesus because you're looking around at us, his followers. And you know we're not faithful. And you've been hurt by other Christians. This kept me, you know, I I finally decided I'm going to check it out. And I investigated the church. And I was hurt on the very first day. Christians proved to me they were just as weird as I thought they were. And hurtful. and And I left and it took six more months before I showed back up again. Because something in me told me that some of those folks may be getting it wrong. But Jesus was real. He was really who he said he was. Now, as I've moved and worked and lived and dwelled with other Christians, and I've got my junk and they've got theirs because I can be a little punk sometimes. I'm a lot less judgmental on them. And I hope you don't keep that or let that keep you from coming to him because he really is who he said he was. And he really does love you that much. And he will really be faithful to you. Even when others aren't or they haven't been. He wants to capture your heart. To hold you a prisoner. Make you safe and set you free all at the same time. That's what he was trying to do with these people. But he had to discipline them. He had to take them to an extraordinarily terrible, awful place they didn't want to go so that he could bring them back. And that's what he did. 
They didn't have to go there. Neither do you. Let me say a prayer for you, and we're going to sing and just worship, and then we're going to go. But I hope that in the midst of this, you would feel the freedom and the grace to step out to a risky place, to trust his heart, to give him your whole heart as best you can, maybe in this moment, before it passes. Let's stand. Father, we trust you. Jesus, our eyes are on you. Bring healing. Bring grace.